Well, good morning. It is great for me to be here again. I was here last year around this time, and it's just so good for me to return and be here and to continue to share God's word with you. If you don't know, I actually grew up in Elmhurst from three months of age to about eight, eight, nine years old, and so I feel like I'm kind of home. Um, so it's great to be here, and I've gotten a chance to really get to know uh, your senior pastor, Rich. Uh, I have a profound level of respect for him, his passion for ministry, and how he wants to continue to lead the church forward, and so we've been really getting to know each other, and he has come and preached at Metro, and we're looking forward to having him come and preach next month. We did a pulpit swap this summer. He said, come, preach at New Life, and I'll come and preach at Metro, and so we're excited about that, and so uh, our church is looking forward to it. But I also have a profound respect and love for your founding pastor, Peace Cazero. And uh, by the way, he just turned 60. I don't know if you know that. And one thing, Pete, you need to talk to Zondor is I find a better way for you to market EHS. You got to tell them that when you embrace EHS in your life, you will begin to de-age. Because you look younger, at, you, I mean, you look like you're getting younger as you get older, which is really a blessing which is really a blessing. But, you know, because of this man's influence with his work, his commitment to emotional and spirituality and to our friendship, he's been a great mentor of mine. Uh, I believe I'm a better man, husband, father, pastor, and uh, most of all, a child of God. And so I'm in deeply indebted to him and to his life's work and, and to his relationship that I have with him. Um, I've been married for 17 years, and I'm thankfully, uh, I can say that I'm happily married. I want to show you a picture of my family. There they are. Uh, my wife, my oldest daughter, Christina, uh, Kayla, and Christian in the back. Uh, I don't know who this guy is, but I think he's a <laughs> professional photo bomber. <laughs> and, uh, you know, um, it's, I'm thankful, and I'm going to share a bit more about our, my relationship with my wife uh, in the sermon. But, uh, you know, I first met her when I was in college, my freshman year of school. And I met her at the school cafeteria. We just kind of connected just by looking at each other. And I'm telling you, when I first met her, it was like love at first sight. Not for me, but for her. All right? No, you got to believe me on that. It's true. It's true. Even she disagrees with me. But, uh, you know, I tell her, I said, but when we first met, I just saw you check me out. I mean, you checked me out for a long time. And she said, well, it's because you were so big. I'd never seen such a tall Korean in my entire life. <laughs> I said, I don't know, and I think it was more than just that kind of a stare. But anyway, uh, we're very, uh, we dated for about seven years, and uh, you could say that I had a little bit of commitment issues. And uh, I, I loved her, uh, I wanted to marry her, she was my first ever girlfriend. And so to make the choice of marrying her, I was actually quite timid, and I was afraid of it. Then about six years into our relationship, uh, my father-in-law calls me to his home. And he sits me down with, of course, my mother-in-law being there. And, uh, and he just asked me the question. He said, you guys have been dating for a while now. What are your plans with my daughter? And it was a very straightforward answer. And I didn't know uh, how to initially respond. But, you know, I did love her. And I said, well, I love your daughter. And one day, not now, but one day, I hope to maybe marry her. Right? <laughs> And he just, I guess he downloaded that information in a way where he said, well, that's fantastic. I approve. You're going to get married. Let's go have dinner. And I remember just thinking, whoa, whoa, like how fast do you anticipate this happening? And so we had dinner, and six months later, we got married. And so <laughs> I want to thank my father-in-law for kind of pressuring me to make the choice to marry my wife, Jenny. And it has been one of the best decisions I have ever made in my entire life. 
I thank God for that and for that decision. But what I realized was I often asked myself, what would have happened if I didn't marry her, if I didn't make that choice? I wonder how my life would be. And what I've learned is that I've learned over the years is that choices and the choices that we make are so vital for us to move forward with our lives. And the sad thing for many of us is I've been pastoring my church for the past 12 years. We have a lot of young people and old as well, but we make such poor choices in our life. Where then when we do that, our past doesn't become something that we necessarily learn from, but what it becomes, it becomes our master. And for so many of us, we have, become, we have allowed our past to master us and we continue to stay paralyzed to it. And so what i like to do today, and I know you're in a series uh, on Proverbs, and Rich said, can you preach on Proverbs? And I said, well, I'd like to preach on this instead, because I know Proverbs is the book of wisdom. And much of, uh, much of you, I know you're longing to live your life with greater wisdom from God. And uh, what Abraham is going to do for us today is that he's going to teach us how you and I can make heroic choices. When I say heroic choices, I'm not talking about choices about what to eat tonight. I'm talking about choices that will make a macro-level impact in your life. Those choices are critical. They're absolutely critical in how you and I are going to live our lives. And we're going to learn from Abraham, the father of faith, in Genesis chapter 22, how we can make heroic choices. So if you have your Bibles, please turn there with me. Abraham chapter 22. And I want to apologize. Oh, it's in there. You guys are great. Uh, Verses 1 through 19. Verses 1 through 19. It'll be up on your screen as well. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for a place, for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. The word provide in the Hebrew is literally translated to see. When God provides for us, you catch a glimpse of who he is, all right? When they reached the place God had told them about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid, laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, 
that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies, and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. This is the word of God. Let's bow our heads for a moment of prayer. And so, God, we come to you today, and we ask that you would speak to us through this text I ask, God, that you would allow us to go deep into it so that you could teach us, God, how we can make better heroic or righteous decisions that would really lead us to connect more deeper with you and to have you more deeply a part of our lives. And so I pray, God, that the words that come out of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts in this room, I pray that it will be pleasing unto you. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. All right, so Abraham now is confronted with a huge choice. The choice is simply this. Does he listen to God and offer his son as a living sacrifice, or does he use human logic to convince God out of it? How many of you have used your own logic to try to convince God out of something? Because in Genesis 15, God promises Abraham a very important promise that he repeats again in this passage. He says, through your offsprings, it will be so numerous that it will be more numerous as the stars in the sky. And here is God now saying to to offer your son as a living sacrifice, to basically murder your son. So Abraham could have used human logic and went against God and said, God, you promised me that you are going to bless my offspring, and all I have now is Isaac. But we find that he doesn't do that. And what we learn about heroic choices, or maybe righteous choices, is that we learn two things about these choices that oftentimes you and I have to make. The first thing that we learn is this. Heroic choices are painful. Heroic choices are painful. It was painful for Abraham to make the choice to sacrifice his son because he loved him so much. Make no mistake about it, if you read between the lines in the story, Abraham didn't sleep that night. He didn't because he loved and cherished his son. And through that love, he realized what he had to do. It was a painful decision. I find that the reason why many of us don't make righteous decisions or you don't make a heroic choice or a heroic decision is because you anticipate the pain that might come if you were to go and do that. Some of you are dating someone that is not right for you. You know this. And it's painful at the thought of you having to actually take a stand and say, I can no longer be with you anymore because it's not healthy for my soul and my relationship with God. You understand the pain of that, and so you know you should do it, but you won't because you're afraid of maybe what that relationship offers to you. Maybe it offers you security in knowing at least you have someone in your life and you don't want to be alone again. And so because of that, you know the pain of what that could cause. And so you decide perhaps not to go and to do that in which God has called you to do. Some of you are working insane amount of hours, 80, 90 hours a week perhaps. As a result of that, you are literally sacrificing your family as a result of it. It's not healthy. You have no limits. And you're thinking, shall I quit my job and trust in God for another one, perhaps? And trust in that, but the uncertainty of your future, of what might happen, of the bills you have to pay, you realize the pain that that might cause, and so you decide not to do it. Some of you have parents, immigrant parents, and uh, they have been so a part of your life in such a way where uh, even though you may be an adult today, they still control your life. They've told you what major you need to major in. They've told you what career you need to pursue, and you have done it to the T. And now you may even be married, but they still, till this day, tell you what to do. And you know, as well as I do, that that is a very toxic, unhealthy relationship. And you have to take a stand and draw boundaries with them, and you realize the pain of what might happen or occur if you 
do that. Some of you are on, in the verge of divorce because your marriage is struggling. That's an amazing decision that you're going to have to make. How are you going to make that decision? And as some of you who are single, as you've been a part of this church, you understand the beauty of what it means to be single. Maybe you've embraced the calling to live a life of celibacy because you realize how rich and beautiful sex is in the confines of marriage. Painful. And many of us don't make the right decisions because we anticipate the initial pain that we might go through. But what we don't realize is that if we don't make the right heroic decisions, then we will make a choice where the pain will last much longer. It's a sacrifice that many of you are making because you're making the wrong choices. It's so painful many times because God is calling you to die to your will and to my will. And that's not an easy proposition. It really isn't. My, I worked uh, in the marketplace for, for four years before I went into ministry. I worked uh, in television called MSNBC. Some of you may watch MSNBC News. Uh, 1996, I helped launch the network, was a production assistant, and eventually um, made my way to become a producer. And so when I first married my wife, my father-in-law loved my career because he felt like, wow, my daughter's going to be well provided for. I don't have to worry about that. And so... Um, when I felt the calling to go into ministry um, through really some miraculous events because my wife didn't want to move to California. I felt God was calling me to go to Fuller Theological Seminary to kind of get away from the family. The reason why is because my wife's family, I just, if I can be honest, when I got married to her, it's like getting married to the mafia. <laughs> really is. I mean, they are, I mean, everything revolves around their family. And I knew that the idea of taking her away to California was something that was not going to sit well with my father-in-law. Because you never move out of New Jersey. You're part of the family, right? <laughs> You're part of the family. And so she, my wife said to me, she said, Peter, I will move with you to California, but you got to tell my father. <laughs> and I said, okay, I, I will one day. <laughs> My father-in-law was not a Christian. He's not a Christian even today. I knew that this would not go well to quit a job that paid well and to pursue ministry. Um, I knew it was going to be a hard choice. It was painful. I still remember the day of when we were going to go down, and I, I solicited much, as much prayer as I possibly could from all my friends. And at work, I couldn't even think about work. I just thought about what would happen. I, I started to play the videotape of what would happen when I tell him this news. And I started to imagine that he would get violent with me, that he'd start insulting me and saying, how dare you betray me? I thought you were going to work in this career for the rest of your life, and now you want to be a pastor um, and things like that. So I just anticipated the worst. And going down there and eating dinner with him, it, it was even harder because he was so happy that I came down. He was smiling, he was drinking, having a great time, and then we went over to the living room, and we were eating, you know, fruits and watching TV, and my wife looked at me and said, hurry up. <laughs> I looked at her, and I just said, all right, relax, I will do it. I could feel and hear my heartbeat, and I told him. And his look of joy, initially when I called his name, he had a big smile on his face, and I said, Dad, um... I feel that God's calling me to be a pastor, and um, I'm planning by September to take your daughter and myself, and we're going to go to California for me to study. And that look of, of joy initially turned into sorrow, and, and he was extremely sad. But he wasn't as violent as I thought he would be. He wasn't violent at all. And uh, he really had a, an adult conversation with me. He said, you're an adult. I can't tell you what to do. But he said, take it from me. I've lived a lot longer than you. Don't be a pastor. It's not going to go well for you. It's not going to go well for you and my daughter. It was painful, but it was the right choice to make. 
Don't let pain deter you from making the heroic choices that God is calling you to make today. Abraham embraced it, and something amazing happened as a result of it. So the second thing we learn about heroic choices is simply this, is that it opens the door for us to encounter God. Heroic choices or the righteous choices that you and I make opens the door for us to encounter God. I saw my father-in-law in a different way. I encountered God. As I was going back home um, after throwing that bomb in his living room. I just experienced God in such an amazing way through that whole process. It opens the door. We find that for, for, for Abraham, as he made the choice to offer his son, what would happen is God provides for him. It opens the door for him to encounter God. And the choices that you and I make are the holiest things that you and I will ever do every day. If you woke up to come to church today, while that might be a holy thing that you did, it all resulted out of a choice that you made. If you decide to pray and consciously pray every day, those are choices in which you and I make. And what you need to know is that choices are so important for you and I. It's the holiest things that you and I will ever do. And many of us, honestly, because you're not making the right choices or the righteous or heroic choices, you are closing the door from you to encounter God. How many times could there have been in your lives where you could have experienced, opened up a doorway in which God has invited you to go through, but because of the choices that you have made, those doors have been closed. And we find that many times that happens. But if you can make the heroic choices, you will open the door in how you encounter God in a deep and powerful way. So how do we make those heroic choices? How do we begin to do that? Well, the first thing that we learned here is that heroic choices are made when you and I embrace the testing of God. Heroic choices are made when you and I embrace the testing of God. How do you like the fact, or do you have a theology in your mind of knowing that God does test you? Does that sit well with you, or does it not sit well with you? I think for many of us, you're like, I don't know if I like that. I love the idea that God, you know, provides and he loves me, but I don't know if I like the idea that God also will test me, right? And when you think about the heart of the gospel message, you realize that God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for you on the cross and resurrect from the dead, which is the heart of the gospel message. And if I were to ask you, why did he do that? You would say, because he loves me. And that's true. God loves you so much that he sent his son to die for you on the cross and he resurrected from the dead. Therefore, now you and I can have an intimate relation with him. Amen? That's the truth. And that's the heart of the gospel. But if I were to also ask you, why do you think God tests you? How would you answer that? And it's the same because God loves you. That's why he tests you. It's because he deeply loves you. Because when you look at this passage, God does want to provide. The heart of this passage is the providence of God, God's provision. But when you look at the God's provision, it only comes to us when we pass the test. The ram didn't come to Abraham until he was willing to sacrifice his son. He passed the test, and then the ram was caught in the thicket. And so what we learned here is that God will test us so that he can provide for us. Most complacent religions will want a God who provides, but you don't want a God who tests. You don't like the idea or the notion that God will test you. And what we learn in this story is a beautiful story, that God will sometimes answer your prayers, your prayer requests, those big prayer requests that you have. What we learn here from Abraham is that we learn that sometimes he's going to ask it back of you. He's going to say, I want that back. And the challenge is, can you give it back to him? Can you give it back to him? Why does God test? A lot of scholars debate upon that as well. And some scholars will say, God didn't know. And so because God didn't know, he likes to test us. Because sometimes you only know a person's heart when you go through a test. But I think 
they're wrong because God knows everything, right? And it's, it's hard to kind of stand up here and say that God didn't know because God is omniscient. He knows everything from our past, our present, and our future. So God did know that Abraham was going to do this, right? But there's a difference between knowledge of cognition versus knowledge of experience. Just because God knew that, this, that Abraham was going to do this, he really wanted to experience it in real time. You see, God knows all of your heart. He knows where your heart is at. Some of you love God very much, and you say that, and you love to come, right, and, and sort of declare that. And God, even though he knows you love him, he wants to experience it in real time. He wants you to pray. He wants you to come and raise your hand and worship God in spirit and in truth. He wants to engage with you at that level. And so that's why God will test us, because he wants to experience your love for him in real time. And he wants you to experience his love for you in real time. It's like you're... you're if you're married, you probably know in your mind that your spouse loves you. Cognitively, you know that your spouse loves you. But if it's not backed up with experience, experiencing that in real time, you might call that into question. There's nothing like it when you experience it in real time. My daughter, Christina, uh, about a month ago, she was studying for her final. She's a freshman in high school. She'll be a sophomore now, and my daughter needs to really take time. It takes her a while to study. She's not as gifted. Um, she doesn't just study like the night before an exam, and she does well. It takes her days upon days to prepare. And so I asked her around the dinner table, I said, hey, so um, what are you doing in school right now? You, is your, are your teachers preparing you for your finals? She said, no, we're not really doing anything right now. And so I said, well, why don't you take the day off tomorrow? Don't go to school. I excuse you. And just stay home by yourself and study. And she looked at me, and she went, what? <laughs> My wife looked at me and like, are you crazy? And I said, you know, Christina, I trust you. I trust that you're going to stay home and you're going to study. You're not going to watch YouTube. You're not going to get on the TV and just slack off, but you're actually going to do the work. She said, of course I'll do that, Dad. I come home the next day, and she was home all day studying and what I believed her to do. And when I asked her, I said, hey, how did it go today? And she said to me, she goes, oh, my head hurts. I studied so long. And there was just such a joy. I was so thankful. Even though I knew she was going to do it, that whole experiencing it in real time made it real special. I gave her a big hug, and I said, I'm really proud of you for studying all by yourself and that you were able to do that. God longs to experience you in real time. That's why he tests you. My professor, Bobby Clinton uh, at Fuller, he's, one of the best lessons he gave was that he said, every day God will give you a pop quiz. Every day. Every day. Not just once in a while, but every day he will give you a pop quiz. If you fail, he'll give you the same one the next day. <laughs> and he said the goal is to try to pass every day. Because if you do pass, God will open the doors for you to encounter him. And you'll get another test, but the test will be even greater and greater, and greater. I believe some of you know the pop quiz that oftentimes comes to you on a daily basis, and I hope you embrace it and realize that if you could make the choice to pass that quiz, that test, it'll open the door for you to really experience God. Embrace the testing of God will make you, will allow you to make the right heroic choices. The second thing we learn in this story is that heroic choices are made when we obey God. Heroic choices are made when we obey God. Obedience to God leads you and I to make the righteous choices in which God desires. For Abraham, in all honesty, everything within his being did not want to sacrifice his son, but he obeyed God because obedience to God for Abraham was the most important thing. 
He held that a very high premium in his life. How do you regard obedience to God in your own life? For many of us, I believe that obedience many times is something that we kind of see as optional, that we've somehow taken God's grace and we use it so that we can use it as an excuse not to obey him. And that's really tragic, right? Because obedience, we have to hold it as a very high premium. Because in the Bible, when you look at it from the Old Testament, even to the New Testament, it's a command. It's not something that should be optional in our life. And we have to care about obeying God. And even though our obedience is always flawed, but that it's a premium in our life. If it doesn't do that, if we don't consider it to be that, then we're just not going to make the right heroic choices in our life. We're going to fall short of it, right? And the beautiful thing about Christianity versus all the other religions is that our obedience is so different from how other people in other religions follow God. Why do people obey God in other religions? So that they can be accepted by God. That's why they obey him. But the heart of the gospel message teaches you and I that God's already accepted us because of Jesus Christ. And so because God's accepted us, therefore we should obey. We obey because God has deeply accepted us and we do it out of that. It's such an empowering, it's such a privilege that you and I get to do when we obey God. And the only way we can learn to obey God and do it well is become a student of the word. To really take the Bible seriously. I'm glad to hear that you guys have uh, some things going on this summer where it will help you to go deeper into the word of God. But listen, we are unfortunately living in a time where our generation is probably one of the most biblically illiterate generations in history of the church. And that's why we're not making the right choices, heroic choices, because we don't know what God desires of us. In terms of how you and I should live our life, that rule of how we should do it is found in the scriptures And we have to dedicate ourselves to becoming a student of the word so that we can learn and grow and really understand how God wants us to live life and and how our our decisions can be guided through him. And so one of the best ways in how I like to do that is I like to read scripture, but I like to read scripture sort of in chunks of anywhere between eight to ten verses at a time. And I always ask myself just two questions. Maybe it could help you. This helps me a lot. The first question I ask as I read the scripture is I ask, God, what do you like in this passage? And I'll just journal it, right? And then the second thing I'll say is, God, how do you want me to obey you based upon this passage? How do you want me to obey you based upon this passage? I wish there was a shorter way. I wish there was a Bible app that can help you to obey God better. But you know what? The only way it's going to happen is if you actually become a student and study the Word of God. You're going to have to put the time into it. And if you do, God will direct you and guide you in how to do it. So many of us, we always look at other people, and I think one of the toxic things that we do in life is we love to compare what other people have against us. And some of you, you get depressed when you think about it, when you see it. Some of us, you always like, you compare your marriage, which you may feel like is struggling, and you compare yourself to other people's marriages. Maybe in this church, maybe to, you know, Pete and Jerry. I mean, they have an amazing marriage. You know, you get uh, Kelly and Shirley, and you see some of these folks, you're thinking, wow, they have such good marriages. What about my marriage? You start comparing. You start looking at somebody, what they drive. You're thinking, wow, they got a really nice car. What a great job they have. I wish I had that kind of job, right? You look at people's homes. You may look at somebody's personality, maybe even their physical attributes, and you compare. You're like, oh, man, I wish I had some of that. And we always kind of fall into this, into this mode of always thinking the grass is greener on the other side. If you think the grass is greener on the other side, all you have to do is just start watering your side. That's it. If you begin to water your side, you'll begin to see the beautiful 
green hue of your grass. And you no longer will look at other people and start to get depressed when you see what they have because you think you don't have it. How do you water your grass? Obedience. When you and I can obey God, we begin to water our side. But one of the hardest, one of the biggest reasons why we don't obey God is because we don't want to surrender control of our lives to him. And so may you begin to obey God as you learn to make the right heroic choices. And then the very last thing that we learn in this story is that we make heroic choices when God is enough. We make heroic choices when God is enough. Abraham loved his son, but he loved God more. Some of you are saying, how in the world can you offer your son as a sacrifice? How, I mean, what in his right mind would he even think? Of? I mean, especially if you're a parent. I mean, think about that. How was he able to do it? Because God was enough for him. Why do you follow God? I worry because I think so many of us, we follow Jesus today because of the benefits package that he offers us. Would you follow God if there was nothing in it for you? Would you follow Jesus if you didn't go to heaven when you die? So many times in our faith in God, we let God become a means to an end rather than an end in and of itself. If you stay single for the rest of your life, God never answered your prayer request of bringing a man or a woman into your life that will marry you. Is God still enough? Is he? In our church, we have a bunch of couples that are struggling with infertility right now. And I understand the depth and the pain that they go through. I see it. If God never gave you a child, a biological child, and if you struggle with that, would he still be enough for you? If God never gave you a job, maybe you're unemployed today and you're in the process of getting, going through foreclosure because of it, but you never worked another day in your life, would he still be enough for you? If God never healed you of a pain that you've endured as a child and you're praying that God would bring healing to it because you feel like that pain has been sabotaging all of your relationships in your life and you never got healed from it, would he still be enough for you? If God never healed your marriage, would he still be enough? If he never answered your prayer of healing a family member who's sick, or maybe you're sick, and he never answered it, would he be enough for you? You see, God will work with us, he will work through us, but God will never work for us. He is not one of our employees that we dispatch for our own purposes. And the challenge is, will God, is God enough for you? I have to be very honest with you. This is tough for me. I wish I could say every day God's enough for me, but I find that there are times where I, I don't live it like that. I grew up in a home right here in Elmhurst. Uh, my father um, would come home sometimes uh, drunk, and, uh, and he, he was unfortunately an angry drunk. And many times when he'd come home drunk, we, my, my sisters and I would know that he was drunk just by how he struggled to open the front door with his keys. And so we would run underneath the bed, hide. Well, my mother most of the times took all the physical abuse from him. But many times he would come to our rooms and, and pull us out of the bed and he would abuse us as well. 
And when he became a Christian, finally, um, he really realized how bad drinking was, and so he tried to do his best to stop, and he was pretty successful at it. But he still emotionally abused my mom quite a bit. And when I was in high school, um, there was a, my father had this amazing gift of that even though it was, it was his fault, he had an amazing ability to flip it and blame it on my mom with tremendous success because of his, of his brute force and his words. And, uh, and so, like, just, it was one of those encounters where it got really heated, and my mom was fighting back, yelling back at him, and, and I felt like I needed to kind of interject because I was afraid that maybe he would, you know, start to hit her again. Uh, so I just said, Dad, I, I, um, it's your fault. And he looked at me with those eyes, with that gaze, those piercing gaze, saying, like, if you don't stop talking, um, I'm going to start beating you. And so I, I, I did what I, I usually do. I went up to the room, and I just kind of sat there, and, uh, and I just remember just kind of praying, and I said, you know what, God? Thank you for giving me an example of what not to do when I get married. Right? I said, I'm glad that at least I have that as an example. I just can look at what my father would do, and I do the opposite, and everything will be fine. Well, let's fast forward. I meet my wife. I finally get married. We, were at, we finally moved out to California. We were in Fuller our first year. It was hard for her to deal with the loss of her parents and her sister and brother. And so in the beginning, we, we got into quite a bit of fights, just over just weird things and just things that I felt like were just didn't really matter, didn't really get at the heart of the issue. And uh, there were times, you know, because now we were struggling a little bit financially. She was making $10 an hour, and I wasn't working because I was studying. Uh, you know, she would even get on me, like, I'm using too much toilet paper, and you got to watch your consumption of toilet paper. And I'm like, what? That's not even, like, sanitary. Like, what are you talking about? And we fight over that. I mean, just there was whatever it was, I felt like she was picking a fight. I'd pick a fight with her. We'd get into fights quite a bit. Well, um, Valentine's Day rolled around. And I simply said to her, I said, uh, honey, dress up. Dress up well when you go to work. Because when you come home, I'm going to take you out. We're going to have a phenomenal evening in L.A. And she said, are you sure? And I said, hey, just call me the mailman because I deliver. (laughs) I deliver. I was like, it's going to happen. And so so she dressed up and she... uh, she was excited about it. I was excited. I dressed up, and I made an, a, a reservation. A friend of mine told me to go to this really good restaurant in L.A. and made the reservation. And we got in the car, and we were driving there, and out of nowhere, she blindsided me. She said something bad about my mama. And you don't say, so, you don't say bad things about my mama. And so that got me going. And then I said, you say that about my mama. And then I started saying some things about her mom. And again, she comes from the mafia. So you can't say anything about her family. And before you know it, we were fighting, yelling at the top of our lungs. We stood outside in the parking lot, in the restaurant. That's the, we were in the car for one hour screaming at each other. She was so upset, she said, this is a horrible night. And maybe she was saying, you didn't deliver today. She said, I want to go home now. And me, I'm more of a practical guy. I said, listen, I know you're upset, but can we just shut it off and go inside and eat? Because I'm hungry. <laughs> she said, no, I want to go home now. And that just set me off. I said, okay. We drove, and I drove as dangerously as I possibly could because I wanted her to fear for her life. The more she said, slow down, slow down, I went faster and faster. It was my unhealthiness. And I usually, uh, our parking lot from our, from our college uh, apartment, uh, our seminary apartment, was about a block and a half away. And usually I'm a gentleman. I give a door-to-door service. And then I will park and I'll walk by myself. 
I was so angry at her. I stopped about two blocks even before the parking lot on the corner. It was a red light, and I just said, get out. And she got out. Very angry. And I went into the parking lot, and I just thought to myself, I said, she started this. It wasn't me. She started it. And I just felt like I need to really finish it because I didn't really finish it yet. And so I said, I'm going to go in there, and I'm going to give her a piece of my mind. And I went upstairs. All the lights were turned off. It's typical. This is what she usually does. She pretends she's sleeping. And so I went into the apartment, opened our bedroom door, and she wasn't there. And then I thought, did she just run away from me? Does she think she could survive without me? And so I started looking around for her around the neighborhood, walking around the block, trying to find her, and I couldn't find her. And then about 10 minutes later, I started thinking, oh, this is not going to look good. I'm in seminary trying to be a pastor, and my wife runs away. <laughs> I started thinking about my reputation. I said, it's not going to be good for my friends. If they see this, it's not going to bode well for my reputation here. They're going to think I'm a real bad Christian. So I want to find her because of that. And then another five, five, ten minutes, I went a few blocks all over, and I couldn't find her. I went through the seminary, walked all over through the, uh, through the library, couldn't find her. And I just go back home. And there's a dark alley where the dumpsters are. She would, I, I just never would have imagined she would go back there because she's even afraid to throw away the garbage at night. She'd have me go because she's afraid of the dark. But I go back there, and I see her, and she's in this, like, this Asian squat. She's not, like, kneeling, but she's, like, on her feet, but she's completely on the floor. And uh, she's just crying. And then she diffused my anger because I saw her cry. And so we went, to the, we went back to the apartment, and we went to bed that night very hungry. I woke up the next morning, and, you know, I'm a good Christian, grab my Bible, have some quiet time with God. And as I went to uh, some time in prayer, you know what God said to me? He said, Peter, you're just like your father. You've become the man you said you would never become. And, of course, I'm defending myself. I'm like, no, 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 no. I'm not like my dad. I mean, she started it. She's the one who started saying some bad things about my mom. And, uh, and he said, you know, it's not about being right or wrong. It's about being righteous. And you're not that. And then God said, and this is something that I never did before, really, in my relationship with her. But he said, you need to go and you need to ask her to forgive you for what you've done and what you've said to her and her family. And initially I just said, I, but I think she should apologize first before I apologize to her because she's the one who started it. And it was that eerie voice of God saying, am I enough for you? Am I enough for you? And I had to go when she woke up, and I went by the bed, and I said, will you forgive me for what I've done and what I've said to you? I've taken that little principle of always asking myself, is God enough? And sometimes the hardest people to get along with are the one that you're married to. And I've applied that principle to my marriage. And we've been married for 17 years, and I can honestly say that my wife is the best friend I ever had. And I kind of equate our marriage like a, big oak tree on a hot summer day. I can always lean under it and draw strength from its shade. Is God enough for you? Is he enough for you? Because you're never going to make the right choices in your life until you can get to the place where you say, God, you're enough, no matter what. No matter what, you are enough for me. With... Uh, would you follow God? Would you give Jesus your life if he gave you nothing back but just himself? Oh, my hope and prayer is that you'll say yes to that today. Because if you do, I believe your choices that you make will be of heroic proportions. Let's bow our heads for a moment of prayer. Amen.
Thank you. I, I want to give you just a brief moment. And if you feel in your spirit a conviction where you sense somehow that you really want God to be enough for you, I want you to make that commitment where you are today and say, Lord, you are enough for me. And be, make sure you mean that from the depth of your soul. And I pray that God will just begin to minister to you that the floodgates of his presence would overflow in your life today. I just want to give you a brief moment to do that, and then I'm going to close this in prayer. God, I really pray for everyone in this room. I pray for um, each and every one of them, especially if they have committed their lives to you in such a way where they want to live their life, where you are no longer a means to an end, but you are the end. You are the telos of their life. I pray for those who want to live their life every day knowing that you are enough. And I know some people in this room have tremendous needs. So to say that means that they would even let go of those needs that they may have in their life. Lord, I pray that as they make that decision to say that you are enough in their life, God, I pray that you would actively walk in their life. I pray that obedience would be the highest premium in their life. Nothing more important in their life would be, would be there but their desire to want to obey you. And even if they do fail, God, that you'd help them to rise back up and move forward and be even stronger as a result of it. I pray that they would embrace the testing of you. And God, that you help them to pass the test so they can experience your provision, your providential love in their lives. And so God, just be with this church. Thank you for the, how they really are a city set on a hill. I pray that they would truly be salt and earth to this entire world and to this area here in Elmer's Queens. And you'll bless them. And God, that if people see them, that they would know that these are followers of God, where they deeply believe in their heart that life with Jesus is better than anything else this world has to offer. And that they would know that these people are totally sold out for you and that their choices would reflect that. And so bless this church and bless everyone who's made that commitment today where they have said that you are enough for them. It's in your name that I pray. Amen. Let me invite uh, the prayer teams to come forward to your right, and uh, we've got the Lord's table over here to your left, and as we close, uh, we want to invite you to come and uh, eat and drink of Jesus at that table, uh, as well as come for prayer. You know, if anything we learn from the life of Abraham is that God's ways are not our ways, and uh, he leads us to places we wonder, why are we going this direction? Uh, when is this going to end? And I'm not sure I want to go. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. So you're here this morning and the living Jesus is speaking. And he is taking you somewhere, just like he took Abraham. And there are times that direction, we don't know what's going on. It seems so counterintuitive. It just, it just doesn't really make a lot of sense. 
You know, if anything we, we long for here at New Life is that every one of us is hearing the voice of Jesus and that you would follow. So as we close here, uh, we've got some prayer teams over to your right. Uh, we we want to we respond to this message uh, that Peter just shared with us and that whatever choices are in front of you right now, that you say, oh, Lord. And some of you know exactly what he's saying. Like the choice is clear to you what he's saying and, and you just, you need grace, you need power to, to say yes. And that's why we, we, we're, we're together as a church. That's why we're a family. That's why God puts us in communities. And I want to invite you to come forward for prayer because you need prayer. I mean, I need prayer. There's moments that are just the big choices that you know are big and everything in you wants to go the opposite direction. And some of you are in that place, please come forward. Let us pray for you. Let, you know, that God will just give you the, the grace and the power to, to say yes. Uh, some of you are in some little choices. You as well, feel free to come. But maybe you're not even hearing real well today. And, and listen, he is speaking. And so we're going to pray. We're going to close. And you say, God, help me to hear right now. And you, you might want to come as well. Okay, so as we close, I want to invite you to open your hands up towards heaven. And uh, what a gift to be here today. And the Lord looks at you and he loves you. And his purposes for you are life, not death. Abundance, not scarcity. Joy and not misery. And you can trust him. So may the Lord bless you. And may he keep you. And may his face shine on you. And may the Lord open up your ears and your eyes. And may he enlarge your capacity to receive from him. May you hear his voice today. And may God breathe on you by the Holy Spirit to get up like Abraham and to make that journey even through a dark night when you can't see. And may your capacity be enlarged that you might receive what Abraham received. That's revelation of this living God. And may you know him who is better than life itself. And as you leave this place, may you be a gift to those you touch. May you be the life of Jesus pulsating through you to everyone that you come in contact with this week. So be blessed, I pray, in the name of Jesus. Receive it. Receive it from him. And everybody said in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you, everybody.